0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you.
0: He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there.
1: On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from I.D., listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. <laughs> Please,
2: we're not going to die.
1: Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify,
3: or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Why all these murders here? Why?
4: Well, one reason is that we have a homicidal maniac who's been running around and we know he's killed 10 people.
2: It was clear that he'd been beaten to
5: death about the head.
4: She's going to hitchhike. She was hitchhiking.
6: Mullen immediately started stabbing him uh, to death.
3: From 1972 to 1973, locals in Santa Cruz, California, were terrorized by not one, but two serial killers. Their names were Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. They operated independently and over the course of 11 months claimed the lives of 21 individuals. Young children, teenagers, female hitchhikers, even a priest was slain. No one was safe. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen. Episode two, Investigating Murder. On May 7, 1972, two students, Anita Lucessa and Marianne Pesch, go missing after hitchhiking a ride. They're never seen alive again. But three months later, Santa Cruz investigators make a macabre discovery on the Loma Prieta mountain, the remains of a human skull. Terry Medina was a detective with the Sheriff's Department at the time.
2: The investigation into these remains was pretty skimpy. Uh, You know, you, you were checking what we then call CINI, which is the state database and NCIC, the National Crime Information Center, on missing persons. Uh, The sheriff coroner, of course, is then tasked to try to find out who these people are. So accessing these databases, find out who's missing, uh, we needed the help of a forensic odontologist.
3: I'm fascinated by this period in forensics. We rely on DNA so much today to identify both perpetrators and victims. But this was before all of that, when criminal profiling was still in its infancy. We have two missing students from Fresno College and a human skull discovered on a mountainside near Santa Cruz. With no way to immediately identify the remains found on the mountain, I want to understand how law enforcement figured out who the remains belonged to. What were the menu of tools that the sheriff's department had at their disposal?
2: Well, so a crime scene is a crime scene, and sometimes it's a really good crime scene. You've got a lot of things there, and sometimes it's like finding these bodies out in the mountains, but it's still treated as a crime scene, and you have to carefully document everything the area so we had two people that would carefully photograph the area photograph the remains the bones we would take samples of all the leaves and the dirt and the branches from the area uh, carefully draw you know crime scene sketching the area measure how far from the road all this stuff takes hours and hours, and in some crime scenes it takes days, because you never know where this case is going to go. And if you don't do all of the work, when you do get a break, if you don't have everything collected right, then you wind up with nothing. So it's pretty painstaking. We didn't have DNA back then. Later on in these cases, you know, we were putting actual body parts together to try to make one whole skeleton and figure it out.
3: So you still had a lot of technology and sophisticated people to help.
2: Yes, we did have that, you know, and and that's what helped you identify a male versus female bones and bodies and bones that were f- from animals and bones that were from humans. And, you know, you just needed that kind of expertise.
3: Frankie Alufi was also a detective at the scene and a close friend of Terry's.
5: I've known Terry since we were teenagers, both raised on the west side of Santa Cruz. And we're still good friends to this day. We play golf every Monday. So, you know, he and I go way back. In fact, we were detectives together in the same office for a period of time before he transferred to the, what they call the scientific investigation section. But things were so I don't want to say poor in those days, but we had one telephone for the two of us on two different desks, so we had it on a swivel. If it was for me, he would swivel it my way. If it was for him, I'd swivel it his way. So things, you know, they're, they're a little tight. Terry and I go way back.
3: When did you get involved, or how did you become involved?
5: As I was the detective with the least amount of seniority, when they discovered his skull up on Loma Prieta, They figured, oh, let's give this to the new guy, you know, so I ended up getting that case. And it was one of those things where the the skull had been there for some time, it was hard to determine if it was male or female or where it came from or anything. So we had to go through the whole process that we were trying to determine blood type. Was it male, female, that sort of thing. And eventually we did a dental chart on it. Uh, in fact, we used my dentist. Uh, he, he did the chart on that skull. Later, as the person was identified, they compared the dental charts and her dentist went to school with my dentist. So they marked their charts in the identical way.
3: The dental tests reveal the identity of the skull. It belongs to 18-year-old Marianne Pesch. But there's still no sign of her friend who she was with at the time of her disappearance, Anita Luchessa. No one has a clue that both have been abducted and murdered by the same man. And that same man, Edmund Kemper, is just getting started. He's modified his 1969 Ford Galaxy 500 to facilitate his murder spree. The lining of the trunk has been ripped out. He has a chapstick ready to drop into the lever of the passenger door to trap his victims inside. He has tape, weapons, and he's drawn up a sickeningly detailed criterion to execute his plans, as he would later outline to psychologist Donald T. Lundy.
2: What are the criteria? Can you list them specifically? Basic safety situations where I have to be aware of what I'm doing completely and totally. Going on towards it, this is a priority to, to attack, we'll call it. Uh, I had to make sure there weren't any cops around. I had to make sure you know, too many cops had not passed around or passed by in traffic, you know. One cop might have seen me one time too many in that neighborhood and figure something out and start following yeah. If there were too many cops around, I wouldn't do it in that area. would go somewhere else. Number two was I made sure nobody they knew stayed behind. So they, would, they would remember what kind of car I had. And my
4: third rule was never to trust me.
3: On September fourteenth, 1972, a month after the discovery of Marianne Pesh's remains, a 15-year-old girl in Berkeley misses the bus to her dance class. Her name is Iiko Ku, and she decides to hitch a ride to the class instead. What she doesn't know is that Edmund Kemper is behind the wheel. Iko Ku has a passion for dance. She's already accepted invitations to perform locally and is finishing a routine ahead of a performance that's scheduled to take place in St. Louis. Her friend Hazel remembers her fondly.
4: I knew Iko when we were 12 years old to 15 years old. And I was very drawn to her. She was friendly. She had a wonderful smile. She was smart. I enjoyed her sense of humor. Very ambitious. I think she wanted to be a doctor. And I knew she would be a doctor because she was really smart. And I envied her smartness. I had to work to be an A student. She worked hard and she was an A plus student. And uh, she's very disciplined. She was very easy to like. She was a very likable teenager, and we had a great time together. Hazel and Aiko were both only children and had a special bond. We were both born in May 1957, and we were both being raised by our moms. And our mothers were pretty tough ladies. They had very high expectations of us, they wanted us to work hard. They respected our intelligence and they worked really hard because they wanted for us to have a good life. And because we were both half Korean, half Caucasian, we didn't have any siblings. We didn't have any cousins. We didn't have aunts or uncles. I did not have any grandparents. I think ICO had a grandmother. So we were really felt very isolated in terms of in the family sense. We just had our moms. So when we met each other at Korean dance class, we were immediately drawn to each other. And because we were taking lessons from a teacher in San Francisco, we spent quite a lot of time on the bus because we had to take the bus from Berkeley to the East Bay Terminal and then from the East Bay Terminal out to uh, the Richmond district where our teacher was. So, you know, it's a good two and a half hours each way. So can you imagine two 12, 13-year-olds, five hours just talking the whole time? It it's just like this endless, you know, chat, chat, chat. And so we be- became very close. It was just such a wonderful relationship. Aiko had started hitchhiking to get from place to place. She seems incredibly young to me to be doing this. Hitchhiking was a normal thing to do for older people in college or in the early 20s, it was not okay to do at our age. I did not hitchhike, I would have never hitchhiked. And what happened was before Iko was kidnapped, I was on my way to Alta Bates Hospital and as I was waiting for the bus, I looked across and I saw Ico. And I was so excited because I hadn't seen her for about three or four months. And I was all ready to, I was like, oh, do I cross the street? And I was ready to say hello and wave my hand. And then I saw her stick her hand out, her thumb out. She's gonna hitchhike. She was hitchhiking. And I was in shock. I was like, what is she doing? I just stared and I remember, oh my gosh, What do I do? Do I run over and try to tell her, I don't think you should be doing that. We're only 15 years old. We're not supposed to be hitchhiking. It's not a good thing to do. I knew that. And what upset me was, why didn't she know that? And before I could decide, my bus came. And I did make a decision to get on the bus. And I was looking at her out of the window, and I was waving, but she didn't see me. When Iko doesn't return
3: home, her mother raises the alarm. I return to Terry Medina. Did the authorities think she was a runaway? I mean, she's so young. Are they worried at this point?
2: She is young. This case is one of the ones in all of these that haunt me. So she disappeared from a bus stop in Berkeley, California. It's about 95 miles north of Santa Cruz County or Santa Cruz City. We really heard nothing uh, about that case. She was reported missing by her mother. And, you know, later on, when we put these big task force together, we had Berkeley PD in the task force and Alameda County Sheriff's Office. And they re- reported that was a, a missing person, kind of a runaway. Although there were detectives up there, I remember this so clearly, that believed this wasn't just a runaway young girl because she was raised by her mom. Her mom was a librarian at the University of California at Berkeley. She was her mother's entire life. Her mother made her clothes. Her mother raised her by herself. And The mother impressed on those officers up in that city that this was not a runaway. She absolutely believed it. And so there were, of course, all the posters on all the telephone poles and where's IcoCo. But it was mostly up there being a beach town. Everybody figured if a kid runs away, they're gonna run away to a beach town, and Santa Cruz was the closest beach town. So there was a few posters of, of her uh, d- down by the beach in Santa Cruz. But other than that, it wasn't much of a connection to us uh, at the sheriff's office or even at Santa Cruz PD until much, much later.
3: You mentioned that Iko Ku was one of the hardest ones. And I mean, even looking at her, I'm pretty hard into all of this, but her face and her mom, and of course, everybody's life is valuable, but that little girl, how could he? How could he with any of them, but but even he describes her differently than the rest.
2: Yes, he does. Edward Kemper almost describes it in a way that he wish she hadn't unlocked the car.
3: What's fascinating to me as a criminal psychologist is the way Kemper remembers every detail of his crimes. He has meticulously planned out how to entice victims, and he manipulates their vulnerabilities. Here's a short clip from Donald T. Lundy's interview with Edmund Kemper. Kemper recounts how it feels to commit his crimes and tells Lundy the story of how he kidnapped
4: Iko Ku.
2: I gather that you were able to go for a long period without
6: thinking about it, or at least without it affecting you in this way? As long as I was on the streets, from the time it happened, I you it know, started in May last year, first
2: it
4: was scary, you know, doing something like that, because it was a hell of a lot of risk.
6: Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize
4: how serious the thing I'd done until after it was done, you know, it was just, uh,
2: it was weird, they didn't black out or anything, you know, it's that just, I guess my sense of values were rather
5: different. Well, where'd you um, pick uh, her personal? up? I picked her up in Berkeley. Since I had
6: to death, too. She was going to San Francisco. And I went through San Francisco on the road, on the highway. So, how do you dispose of that body? Where? In two, two different counties. Head and hands of an Alameda
4: county.
6: And the rest in San Cruz? Oh, uh, yeah.
3: The rest of Kemper's story, as he tells it to Dr. Lundy, is truly chilling. But for now, I continue talking to Terry Medina.
2: You know, let me remind you that, now here's a 15 year old, she does not know how to drive. She misses her bus to take her to ballet class in San Francisco. So she's looking frustrated, she's looking around and Edmund Kemper is looking for a victim. And it's a perfect victim for him. He knows she's distraught, not paying attention, pulls over, offers her a ride, and out of, I think, desperation, she says, yes. And uh, that became the end of her, right then and there. Although she wouldn't die for another two hours, probably.
4: So then, later on, when my mother showed me the clipping, of Ico's disappearance in the newspaper, I was really upset. I was really upset. I cried, I prayed, and I thought to myself, gee, Hazel, what if you, what if you were to stop and and ran across the street and I felt really horrible. Felt really horrible because I really cared about Ico, And I didn't want anything horrible to happen to her. And I was really sad that she, dis- she, was- she hitchhiked. And um, I was confused, I was very confused. So, but it was, yeah, it was really horrible.
3: But there was more horror to come. Coming up, Santa Cruz's second serial killer, Herbert Mullen, begins his murder spree.
4: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you.
0: He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there.
1: On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from I.D., listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers.
2: <laughs> Please, on, we're not going to die.
1: Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee and US News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe
3: like Simply Safe. For weeks, possibly months, Herbert Mullen has been falling deeper into his delusions, and he's begun formulating a plan to kill multiple people. On October 13, two months after Marianne Pesha's skull is found in the mountains, a 55 year old homeless man named Lawrence White is found bludgeoned to death by a baseball bat. Here's Terry Medina.
2: So, Larry White was our case. And Larry White was, he was just this nice old guy and all the cops knew Lawrence White. He was one of quite a number of town alcoholics. He spent time in the county jail for being drunk and disorderly. But you know, when he was sober, he was was a very nice man. We all knew him. And his body was found on Highway 9. about maybe a mile or two up from Highway 1. It's kind of going up into a mountainous forested area, and his, his body is found right, right next to the uh, pavement of the road itself. And it was clear that he'd been beaten to death about the head.
3: I can understand why the murder of Lawrence White appeared like an isolated attack. He was a vulnerable person who may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Perhaps there'd been an altercation. These types of crimes are tragic and heartbreaking, but they're also not unheard of. Yet what detectives didn't know, what nobody knew, is that this is far from an isolated incident. Lawrence White is the first of Herbert Mullen's victims, and Mullen is already scouting his second. Mullen would later tell Dr. Donald T. Lundy that he committed these murders to save California from a natural disaster. I speak to Emerson Murray, author of Murder Capital of the World.
6: It wasn't really until the UCSC murder started happening that people in Santa Cruz really started to say, hey, there's something going on here. You know, we understand there's bodies being found, but now there's something happening here. Herbert Mullen heard his parents' voices in his head, but on this occasion, he was driving by Cabrillo College which is a a local junior college, and out in front of the college was this big white Cadillac. And if you lived in the valley at that time, you knew who owned this Cadillac. Uh, It was a man named Ray Liebenberg, and Ray Liebenberg was sort of a San Lorenzo Valley character. We all used to see him. He'd drive by in this big white Cadillac, and he had a long white beard, and it would be flapping out the window. And my parents would say, oh, there's Ray Liebenberg. And he was like an arborist or something to do with trees. I don't know exactly. And he had other jobs. I think he was a masseuse or something sort of it's unusual. And he had run for a supervisor. And I don't think he was successful with that. Well, Herbert Mullen knew who, who Ray Liebenberg was. And so he saw his car on the side of the road right in front of UCSC. And Ray Liebenberg's voice came into Herbert Mullen's head and said, you're going to need to kill someone for me. And so Mullen drove home, was thinking about that. And the next day, when he was driving by Cabrillo again, because he went to Cabrillo College, uh, a woman was out there exactly where Ray car was, and that was Mary Guilfoyle. And unfortunately, she had her thumb out, and she was hitchhiking. And Mullen picked her up and immediately stabbed her in the chest. And he felt that she was supportive of this, and she supported his idea that she was sacrificing herself to stop natural disasters because she had slumped onto the floor so that nobody else could see her so she was helping him get away with the crime so that was really
3: that was a sign yeah a sign that she was okay with this yeah at this point it's important to note that ray liebenberg had never been involved in any real discussion with mullen The conversation was all imagined in Mullen's head. The bodies and missing persons were starting to add up, and neither Mullen nor Kemper were on anyone's lists of suspects. To further understand how daunting a prospect solving 21 horrific homicides was at the time, I want to dial back a little to understand the culture of law enforcement in the 1970s. Terry Medina. What was it like to be a detective... How did you become a detective? And what kind of crimes were you dealing with every day?
2: You know, so for getting selected to be a detective was just an an evolution. So I was with the Sheriff's Department at the time. We were the largest law enforcement agency in the county. The city of Santa Cruz had its own police department and they were fairly large. And the cities of Capitola and Scotts Valley were very small. They had their own police department, but Capitola had one detective, Scotts Valley had had one. So the sheriff's office, uh, we had about eight, eight or nine probably. And, and the way you got there was just an evolution uh, in management, looking at your whole body of work. There's no computers in those days. So how well you could write, how well you could spell, how legible your handwriting was, When you were a patrol officer, did you make a lot of arrests? What did the district attorney's lawyers think of you as a witness in court? All those things kind of went into a selection process of people, and so I wound up being a detective in 1970.
3: Before all of these major homicides began, what type of work were you doing? I mean, the day-to-day crime, what would you have to deal with at this point?
2: Typically, we would have five or six homicides a year in our jurisdiction. Santa Cruz uh, City would have maybe three or four a year. We had nobody in the county, including us in the sheriff's office, dedicated to homicide. We had eight or nine detectives. One of them was dedicated solely to bad checks and fraud. (laughs) And the rest of us worked robberies, burglaries, grand theft, things like that, what I call vanilla crimes. When a murder case did occur, everybody dropped what they were doing, and two guys get assigned to the murder case or four. just depends on, on what was unfolding.
3: As a psychologist, I can't help but be acutely aware of the impact that crimes of this nature have on those, like Terry, who are tasked with investigating them. I wanna talk a little bit about the impact of these murders and disappearances
2: on you and Mickey
3: and how important it was to have him, to have someone to have this bond with.
2: Well, Mickey and I were born and raised in Santa Cruz. He a little bit older uh, than I, and uh, he had fought in Vietnam. He joined the sheriff's office a few years after I did, but we knew we had known each other from when we were much younger growing up. And we wound we wound up uh, in the investigation bureau together, but you know during this time there's so much going on. Every single person in the detective bureau, and we got very, very, very close. We worked hard, we played hard, we drank too much. Mickey and I, we shared a lot of sadness together. We shared a lot of shared a lot of everything, you know, and. Our, Not to mention what's going on in our life. You know, in my life, I was married, had a small child, and all these, you know, working all these nights and never coming home didn't help anything.
3: That must have been harrowing for you.
2: I think what happens to police officers that do this, and in big cities, there are detectives that are just solely homicide detectives, but people that do this... uh, Whether they're in the corner section or homicide or like us back then, you're so focused on what you're doing, you try not to let the true trauma and ugliness of what human beings do to one another get inside you. And everybody handles it in a different way. I mean, I said we worked hard and we played hard, we worked. So many hours, and there were some bars that told us where the key was, so we could unlock the door and go in and drink in a bar after we were no matter what time of the day or night it was.
3: <laughs> you probably needed that,
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so you just got so tight, like a cohesive unit. You laughed together, you felt bad together, and you just tried to drive through it. You just because. There's a job to do. I know you hear that all the time, but you, you keep doing it.
3: Terry's partner, Mickey, has similar recollections from the time. What was it like for you to roll up onto these crime scenes? How did you cope?
5: You have a tendency to build a defense mechanism. Um, mm. You look at some of the things, uh, maybe with the kind of, sense of humor. You try to distance yourself emotionally from it. There was another homicide in Santa Cruz about the same time that wasn't associated with Mulliner Kemper, but it was a a young girl, uh, her stepfather, they were camping and he got irritated and threw her across the Mm. campsite and hit her head on a log and it severed her spinal cord. I couldn't attend the autopsy because this little girl looked exactly like my oldest daughter. So I I, I couldn't go, I, I had to have somebody else fill in for me.
3: I couldn't imagine.
5: Oh yeah, it's terrible, it's really terrible.
3: Did you ever feel like quitting?
5: Not at this time, um, because everything was happening so quick. You know, we just wanted to get out there and do the best job that we possibly could. There are times within your career, you know, they they used to call it the seven-year itch, when you've been there for seven, eight years, you're thinking about moving on to something else. And you know, I think I thought about that, but I never did. I just stayed with it for all 41 years.
3: Shortly after the Second World War, a French-resistant fighter from Marseille emigrated to the United States. His name was Henry Tomei, and by the time the murders had started in Santa Cruz, he was working as a priest at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Los Gatos, California. I return to Emerson Murray. Can you tell us about the murder of Father Henry Tomei?
6: Herbert Mullen had gone to San Francisco to pay a $10 premium on the life insurance policy that he had. And so on his way home from San Francisco, he was drinking beer and whiskey. And I'm not exactly sure how he came across the church because it's not right off of Highway 17, but it's close. So he went into the church and his idea was that he was going to pray and he was going to build strength to never kill again. He had already killed two people. So he went into the church and he saw that Father Henry Tomei was in the confessional. The light was on in the confessional. And so he went and knocked on the door really hard. And Henry Tomei, I guess, didn't answer right away. And he went to leave. And then Henry Tomei opened the door, and Mullen immediately started stabbing him uh, to death. According to Mullen, he had never planned to do that. It just was spur of the moment, opportunistic chance.
3: Whatever the circumstances of Mullen's meeting with Father Tomei, we know from his interviews with Donald T. Lundy just after his arrest that there was a deeply disturbing psychology behind the killings. He claimed that his victims communicated with him subconsciously to agree to their own murder, or sacrifice, as Mullen phrased it. His delusions were rooted in a warped understanding of the Bible, as this interview extract demonstrates.
2: You know, I mean, you read in the Bible about uh, Jonah. There was 12 men in the boat, Jonah was in the boat. You know, it's
5: just like Jesus, you know.
4: Uh, And Jonah stood up and said, God, darn, man, if we don't, you know, if somebody doesn't die, all 13 of us are gonna die. So he jumped overboard, you know,
3: he was drowned. Police get a lead on the murder of Henry Tomei when a witness claims to have seen a tall young man wearing dark clothes and boots flee the church. Their line of inquiry focuses on the notion that it's a burglary gone wrong. What is undeniable, Is that more than any other case so far? This case sends shockwaves throughout the area. And why wouldn't it? People go missing all the time, but it's not often a priest gets slaughtered in his own confessional. I return to Terry Medina.
2: So, yeah, this one hit everybody pretty hard. So the priest is killed in his own church in Los Gatos, California. Just before you get down into San Jose, there's this little... Uh, city called Los Gatos and it's a beautiful little town kind of an upscale community really nice Catholic Church there on the edge of town and he's killed in his own confessional so it's not our case But the news about a priest being killed in his his own church, in his own confessional, just exploded all over the San Francisco Bay Area, all the networks, it drew national attention. And and what I remember about that was talking to my partner, Mickey Luffy and, and all the other detectives like, thank God, you know, we don't have to deal with that one. Little did we know later on, we would be dealing with it. in a a different context. As
3: 1972 draws to a close, seeing all of the cases combined, a pattern begins to emerge. Only, it's a pattern that has the potential to lead investigators astray. We have four young female hitchhikers missing, one of whose skull has been found in the mountains, three have been taken by Kemper, one by Mullen, neither of whom are on the law enforcement's radar, We have a seemingly random attack on a homeless man and another seemingly random attack on a priest. The cases cross county lines, they're confusing, and there's very little forensic evidence to work with. But with the disappearances and murders mounting, law enforcement begin to ask each other the unthinkable. Could there be a serial killer on the loose? Next time, we follow the case as it continues to unfold, as Kemper's and Mullen's murder sprees escalate, and the once serene setting of Santa Cruz turns into a bloodbath. Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen, is brought to you by Aero Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.